Three, two, one. Hi, everyone. Hope you're all as happy as one can be this Christmas. And that's we're going to discuss today the, is the, the, the situation in Israel. So apparently we, we're going to have the fourth election in two years in Israel. And this is, this is what we're going to discuss with the capitalist, the scholar, and as always impeccably dressed Jonathan Hornick, but also the Lord Emperor behind the scenes today is going to be the Lord Emperor on the forefront of the scenes or however this is called. So we have with us Razi Ginsberg, who definitely has things to say about Israel. Now, to be honest, my relationship with Israel is having read Netanyahu's book about Israel in the Middle East some years ago and thinking, well, there's a politician with some uh, principles who understands uh, what it means to be guided by ideas. Now, people who know him better are telling me that this is a misunderstanding. The only thing I can speak confidently about Israel is the great work that the Greek manager is doing in Maccabi Tel Aviv in the basketball, in EuroLeague. But I assume most of our viewers are going to have no idea what I'm talking about. So probably that's all the contribution I have for today. So Razi, why don't you tell us a bit more about what's happening in Israel? Well, I have a little bit to say about uh, Maccabi's EuroLeague performance this season, but we'll we'll leave that for another episode. So, uh, yeah. So yesterday it it became official that Israel is going into its fourth election within two years. That's going to happen on March twenty third. Uh, so, so first, I think we need a little bit of background about how the Israeli political system works. It's it's. A little bit different from uh, what we know in the UK and in the US, uh, and, and those are different from each other. So Israel has a parliamentary system. There is one uh, chamber of parliament. There is no, you know, House and Senate or uh, House of Commons and House of Lords. There's one house, one one chamber, 120 uh, members of Knesset, the Israeli parliament, and they're elected in a proportional representation system which, you know, many people in countries that don't have proportional representation seem to think that that's the best way. Now, what is proportional representation? It means you vote for a party rather than a candidate and you vote, uh, the party has a list. So, and, and they get the proportion of, of the vote in seats in parliament. So to give a uh, Nikos friendly example, let's say you get 10% of the vote and out of the 120 seats, that means you get 12 seats in parliament. Uh, and, and that means your list, the party's list, gets the first 12 people on that list into parliament. Uh, For people who didn't get the joke, Razi claims that I'm not as good in maths as I am in uh, hopefully applying an objectivism priest to camera affairs, but let's continue. Yeah, well, I think that's a pretty um, non-controversial statement. But anyway, so... So yeah, you get uh, you know whatever proportion of uh, of um, the votes you get, you get in number of seats. Now, uh, here in the UK, we have a parliamentary system with a different type of of uh, voting system. And even though in the past decade we've had a couple of coalition governments, it's not a usual thing in the UK, right? In the UK, usually one party gets a majority of seats and they form the government. By the way, for our US audience you don't get to vote for the leader. The leader is, is the prime minister. 
Uh, we don't, uh, well, there's a president in Israel, but he's, it's a symbolic, uh, you know, uh, figure. He doesn't, he doesn't have any power. So the prime minister uh, leads, is, is the head of government, and he does not get elected directly by the people. You don't get to vote for the different uh, prime ministerial candidates. You get to vote for a party. Then some party has to form a coalition government. Now, you need a majority. You need 61 votes in parliament for your government in order to, to have that government ratified by, by parliament. Now, in the 23 uh, elections for parliament in Israel, the total number of times that one party got a majority is zero. So that has never happened. We, it has always been a coalition government. And coalition government, basically what it means is one party, almost always the party with the most seats in parliament, has to buy the other parties. There's, there's no other way of, uh, of, of putting it, uh, which is why, for example, the uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel have you know, much more power than, than their proportion uh, you know, in the population. They, uh, they are often the, the kingmakers. And they can, uh, you know, they can, they can, they have, that, that gives them negotiating power, which is why their education system is very well funded by the taxpayer, mostly those taxpayers who, you know, who have, who, who probably would not send their kids to that system. Yeah, Nikos, you have a... So, so you are saying that they're the natural allies, if I understand well, of the right. So Likud governs with the, the religious orthodox, is this... They do uh, mostly, but they they have uh, sat with left wing governments. Basically, if you give them money for their indoctrination or, or you know education uh, system, then they will uh, they will be on your side. So, and and of course, it's not just them. It, there have been all sorts of weird political parties throughout uh, throughout time that uh, that have uh, managed to yield. This power, so you know, proportional representation sounds great. Like in the UK, we have the first past the post system, and so you vote for uh, your local MP. And in many many constituencies, the majority of votes are you know not for the person who gets elected. So most people who vote don't actually have their uh, you know preferred choice in parliament. Whereas in a system like Israel, the vast majority of people get at least some of their uh, their, you know, people in, in into parliament. They do get um, past the, the threshold, which is, I think, 3.25%, if I'm not mistaken. So basically, you need four seats in parliament to make it into parliament. Yes. Can I throw a question here to, to both of you? So uh, wouldn't we, who are a minority in politics, who are people with views that are not going to be majoritarian anytime soon, Shouldn't we welcome this system? Because think about it this way. Let's say uh, we know our friend Mark Pellegrino, for example, has made an attempt with a political party in a representational system based on uh, maybe his charisma or a good campaign. He could find himself in the parliament. So from what you say, wouldn't we say that real radicals like us should be cheering for this just representative system, I mean, just in terms of it gives you justice in terms of it actually represents the population in the parliament. Shouldn't we be looking forward? Yeah, maybe you'd have 
five Marxist-Leninist parties, but also you could have a party which is closer to our views, and then we can make a pol- we can make an educational political campaign, and that would be good for us. What am I missing here? Well, I'm just I'm, I'm I'm just waiting for the translation, Nikos, to to go through so I can understand exactly what you were saying. But okay, good, I got it, got it. No, I'm I'm kidding, of course, my friend. I mean. Look, very interesting perspective. I think it highlights, even among semi-free countries, the difference in government. Although, Razi, I have to tell you, you know, from an American perspective, you're um, lamenting the fact that there is no uh, agreement in government. You kind of can't get a coalition together. And from an American perspective, you know, we, at least I think a lot of American objectivists, celebrate that. You know, the most prosperous periods in American history have been periods of that kind of political gridlock. And in fact, a lot of the American system is designed, I mean, we call it checks and balances, but basically designed to keep major changes from being, uh, from going through. Dr. Jerome Brook has, has said a couple of times, and I agree that, you know, you should be careful when, you know, all politicians are as a majority agreeing on anything. So, you know, and, and I have to tell you, Razi, again, from, a, from an American's perspective and from an investor's perspective, I'm looking at a lot of Something good is happening in Israel. I don't know if you guys can see this. These are some of the ETFs that track Israeli stocks. And, you know, they're just friggin' taking off. So, you know, Razi, it was so interesting when you said, oh, you know, some terrible things happening in Israel. You know, from, a, from an investor's perspective, doesn't look like that. And even from an American's perspective, don't you welcome the idea of divided government? Because that means government can do less when it terms comes up with, you know, kind of cockamamie harebrained schemes? Yeah. So I actually, about an hour ago, spoke to an Israeli friend. And uh, yeah, we, we discussed that because in Israel, uh, one of the complaints that you hear uh, often, at least from the talking heads, is is that these elections are so expensive. And I, I, I was telling him on this call, and I told him in previous elections, uh, that this is you know, this is the the cheapest uh, the cheapest thing that can happen. Like this is the least expensive. You know, it's it's way more expensive when members of parliament are are working, because what they do is spend money, spend you know money that isn't theirs that somebody else earned. So I agree with you on that. But yeah, this gridlock is uh, there. There literally is is no government. I mean, there there was there's some sort of. Uh, you know, whatever, whatever was the last government is kind of still in power, but they can't, uh, they, they, they basically have a, a very difficult time uh, doing anything. So, so in, in many ways, that's good. In some ways, especially in a place like Israel, there's a downside to it. Remember, Israel, Israel is, is in a perpetual lifeboat situation. It's surrounded by enemies. It, uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it it has concerns that other uh, places don't have. So, um, but yeah, yeah, to well, a very well, large extent, I agree with you. Uh, and let me oh. again, I mean, uh, let me jump in quickly, very briefly from, again, kind of an American perspective. And thank you, Mary Aline asks, why is there so much innovation in Israel? And I think it's, it's worth emphasizing, you know, what differentiates Israel is a lot of things, not just the political advancement, but that technological advancement, you know, Razi, Dr. Brooke mentioned something on one of his recent podcasts at all. You know, he mentioned that, you know, childbirth in Israel is dramatically higher than anywhere else around the world. He posited that the reason was is that Israel is more optimistic about the future. There's a younger generation of Israel 
Israelis. I think being influenced a lot about the work you're doing and the work you've done in, in Europe writ large about an optimistic view of the future, a positive view, a capitalist view of the future. And Israel, you know, is, is, uh, isn't at risk really as it was, you know, in the, certainly in the 70s when it almost lost a war uh, against its foreign en enemies. So despite all this confusion in the parliament and all this confusion in the Israeli government, you know, Israel is, is doing something right, isn't it? Well, I like that optimistic view. I don't necessarily share it. I think one of the reasons uh, people are having so many kids in Israel is because government pays them more the more kids they have. And that's that's one of the influences of, uh, you know, the, the uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews having so much power and working in parliament, by the way, with uh, with the, you know, the Islamists. And uh, that's, that's okay. a weird coalition, but they both want, uh, you know, um, more, more uh, child benefits from the government. So uh, I, I think there's that. Now on Mary Lean's question, well, a big part of it is because that is a cultural, uh, that, that's the part of the culture in Israel. You know, you have to be successful and it's not necessarily, you know, for the right reasons. I think it's, it's uh, Israel's form of tribalism. It's definitely better than, you know, other forms of tribalism in that people at least, you know, you know get to produce stuff that is valuable uh, to humans. But uh, yeah, I've, I've, said this half jokingly in the past, you know, when I was really shocked by how in the UK, there's such a focus on, you know, the, the, the poor and the, you know, supposedly downtrodden and so on. And I said, you know, uh, being successful in Israel is, is held in almost as high regard as being unsuccessful is uh, in, in the UK. So, so that I think that is a part of the reason why uh, there's so much innovation going on. So let me ask you something else, gentlemen. So most of us, the outsiders, when we think about Israel, and particularly about the Israeli right, two figures come to mind when it comes to the last, let's say, decades. The one is Ariel Sharon, the other is Be uh, Benjamin uh, Bibi Netanyahu. And what we have in our mind is that these are the hawks. These are the people who, in some ways, are, to use it the conventional way, extremists. And these are the people who are very aggressive in, uh, when it comes to the foreign policy of Israel. Now, what struck me is that when I talk to you, Raz, you tell me that this is definitely not the case and that Netanyahu is definitely overrated. So the question is this. What's, what has been the stance of the Israeli right towards the, the, the Palestinian question, how it relates to the the rest of the political spectrum in Israel, and also why you Razi are a bit not a bit a lot skeptical when it comes to Netanyahu as someone who understands the vital interests of Israel and is someone who is able to have a principled foreign policy. And by the way, how does he come that he wins the elections and he's and he's such a good uh, survivor in, as a politician? So, uh, yeah, Netanyahu is, uh, you said, he, he, I think he's overrated. Well, I think he's overrated in maybe the American right. I don't think uh, in, in Israel he's overrated. I think in Israel people have called his bluff a long time ago. It's just that there is nobody else. Like, they're, they're all so bad. And the, the parties that are supposedly to the right of him sit in coalitions with him, uh, you know, criticize his his policies that they support, 
And uh, so, so that that's kind of how politics works in Israel. You have a coalition government, you know, you have uh, partners in that government criticizing a government that they're a part of in ways that if that happened, you know, if, if, if the Secretary of State in the U.S. Uh, criticized America's foreign policy, they would no longer be the Secretary of State. That doesn't make any sense. But in Israel, that's a part of the, a regular part of the system because they have different parties. They usually, by the way, historically, it was stable enough that, you know, elections are supposed to take place every four years. They usually take place around like three and a half years because, you know, half a year before one of the parties pulls out of the coalition and say, you know, we're going to stand up for our principles. So, you know, we're, we're only going to sit with these uh, these guys for three and a half years rather than four. So, you know, who you can trust in the in the next election. But uh, yeah, it's it's that's the thing. There's the the people on the so-called right in Israel who actually think that uh, who who. Uh, say that Israel should pursue a more aggressive defense policy, uh, say it when they're not in power, sometimes say it when they are in power while uh, voting for, for other things. And uh, yeah, no, nobody actually uh, is, is prepared to do that. So I'll just briefly jump in that, you know, Riz, uh, Razi, I appreciate as someone who, you know, from Israel and born there and you know, you're very tuned into it, but you know, I'll just share, this is, you can see this is me. I, uh, is it Masada, top of Masada? That's uh, close enough, yeah. Yeah, Masada. You know, um, I, I see Israel as a great investment opportunity. I see it, I think as Ayn Rand did, as a real shining beacon in the Middle East. Its economy demonstrates that. I mean, it is a, a huge global hub uh, for innovation. And um, I'm much more optimistic than you are, Razi, for the future for Israel. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's part of why the work you're doing, I think, is so influential and why I think the liberty movement writ large, you've had a lot of the stars of that movement here on your program at, on, on the Daily Objectives. So, um, you know, I think one has to be bullish on Israel. You know, Iran saw that. Go back and, you know, listen to some of those, those Donahue interviews where she analyzed the, you know, the, the, the situation in the Middle East. I mean, her prediction is, Israel is, these are my words now, kind of a, really the only beacon of light in the cesspool of collectivism. I think it's playing out. And it even sounds like some of the worst parts of, of Israel. I mean, I remember I was there for Boaz Ender's uh, Freedom Conference a couple of years ago. There's even talk of ending the draft there. Um, that's a huge bullish step for capitalism, for individualism in what is the most capitalist and individualist country in the Middle East. So I'm a bull in Israel despite I know what you see from a, a very narrow perspective as being political mess. By the way, something also for, for some viewers who might not know our take on Israel and Palestine, for example. Okay, I won't say our view because we might disagree with each other, but the big picture is we believe that even, not even specifically sometimes for the individual Palestinians who want to live a good life, a fulfilling life, uh, Getting over this, this tribalism in the Middle East and realizing that what they should be looking forward is not a different state where they have fewer rights than they would have in, a different, in, a, in, in, in another state, but actually a state which respects everyone's rights irrespective of what is their background would be the best solution. So when we say, for example, that, uh, uh, that, uh, the, that we, we more, let's say, support Israel, this is not based on any ethnic or tribal point of view. It is based on 
from the countries that are around the area, it is the country that respects individual rights more than other countries. Now, it's not doing... Yeah, look, they got a friggin' sweet McDonald's, a a bunch of them in Israel. I mean, this is... When I've been there, it feels like, you know, as a completely first world, developed, rational country with interesting people pursuing values, pursuing wealth. Uh, Whereas in so much of, uh, you know, the other parts of the Middle East, that's just simply not the case. Sorry, Nikos, didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, that, that was just a parenthesis because we might have someone who watches first time and might think that, uh, yeah, but what about you know, the Palestinians and all this stuff? Anyway, that would take us hours. I'm just giving, giving let's say, the, yeah, the but, short view. But Nikos, I, on that point, yeah, I, I've said in the past, you know, a Palestinian who, you know, wants a better life will, will uh, say to his, uh, you know, his people, let's look at Israel and learn. Let's let's be like them. Let's work with them uh, rather than let's uh, you know bomb them and see if we can kill them, kill them all and uh, throw them in the, the ocean. Or the, the... Ra- last point, uh, Razi. I, I did. I didn't want to make a point on on Jonathan's point. Yeah, when I left Israel in two thousand and eight, there was virtually no freedom movement. And yeah, what Boaz Arad has done with the Ayn Rand Center Israel and the the new liberal movement is. You know, it, it is it is amazing. I mean, it's you know, there's a there's a member of parliament today who is, you know, she's not a laissez-faire capitalist, but she's as close to it as I've ever seen in my lifetime, and I think closer than anybody uh, ever before. There's a party by uh, Libby Molad, who you know, who uh, um, I don't know if if she's planning to run. I'm hoping we'll have her on something uh, on our channel at some point soon to discuss that, but. Uh, you know, th- there is there is some movement in that direction. Uh, my pessimism is just I don't think it'll happen fast enough, and I don't know how you uh, you you um, I don't know how you sway the ultra orthodox, the people who really are you know convinced that their imaginary friend has sent them on a mission. Uh, and and there I was I was watching I was watching uh, Israeli news last night uh, because because there's an election and there was some massive demonstration and you know the, these people are are they're insane they're there's there's no there's no talking to such people and convincing them uh you know to think about their life on earth as you know their highest value so uh so i have two parting thoughts the first is that uh, unfortunately greece has sent you has only one good yanis to send to Israel, and it's the one that has changed the fate of Maccabi in basketball. But please don't take our other Yanis, who is uh, Varoufakis, because that's not good news for your economy. So there's so much help we can offer Israel. The other thing is that I think today became clear that Razi needs to be more often on the show, and that although he's became known as the Lord Emperor behind the scenes, he has also things to offer on the forefront. So... Gentlemen, any parting thoughts? Well, I'll, I'll briefly just say, I mean, Israel, I think, has, has got a huge, bright future ahead of us, ahead of it. And even as an American, um, you know, I've had such great fun going there. It's going to become post-COVID a regular family tradition. As I said, I've been there four times, I think, in the last, I guess, now six years. Um, there's such to explore there that's not just kind of the old world, but the new world as well, all the explosions. I mean, the, the skyscrapers there, I mean, the, the, the food. So just been great fun. So the medical uh, innovation, the medical innovation that we that we all benefit from. 
Yeah, absolutely. And as an investor as well, um, there's a lot of money that's been made in Israel and I think will continue to be made in Israel, not because the water is any different there than anywhere else in the Middle East, but because the ideas. That's what we're doing here every day at the Ayn Rand Center UK, trying to promote those exact ideas. Uh, and we appreciate you joining us and I appreciate my, my co-host for uh, welcoming here today. Uh, well, the water in Israel is holy, as you know, Jonathan, so it is different. Uh, but yeah, Nikos, I appreciate the compliment. But no, the, the only way I can, uh, you know, the elections in Israel are on Tuesdays as well. So the only way you'll see me regularly is if we do election Tuesday every Tuesday. But I don't think think we're going to lose all our audience if we do that. So uh, but yeah, I will be back because I think this is something we'll cover a few more times, if not on the daily objective, than on uh, some separate special uh, show on YouTube because it is important. I do think Israel is is important, not just you know for me because I came from there and have family and friends there, uh, but it is important in the grand scheme of things. It is it is this sort of as Jonathan said, a beacon of hope in the Middle East, where where you know it's it's the only one. It's the only hope in the Middle East. So okay, so many thanks to both of you today. For the first time, I managed to also engage with the chat. So I see it's good fun. I see why other co-hosts are doing it. And many thanks to Marilyn for the, for the super chat. Yes. So thanks to everyone. Thanks to our viewers. Hope you all have a good time. And uh, Nikos, if people, because uh, this was like 25 minutes, if people want more of our live content, is there anything they should uh, know about? Yes, there is, but you know more about it. So why don't you tell us? So at uh, 7 p.m. UK time, which is... 33 minutes from now, we will have James Valiant back on uh, to discuss Ayn Rand's essay, Philosophy and Sense of Life. So uh, yeah, that, that'll start at seven. It'll go on for uh, as long as it'll go on, one to two hours. Uh, and yeah, I hope you join us for that. Thank you, Razi. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.